Hi, this is Rich Cooper with the Space Foundation, and this is the Space for You podcast. Conversations with the people who make space and all of our space adventure possible. I'm sitting here today with one of the great storytellers about our space adventure, Basil Hero, the author of a newly released book called The Mission of a Lifetime, Lessons from the Men Who Went to the Moon. Basil is an accomplished journalist working for a number of major media outlets, but his ability to tell the story of, well, I will say the very personal story of the people who were part of the greatest adventures of humanity is pretty astounding. Again, the book is called The Mission of a Lifetime, Lessons from the Men Who Went to the Moon. Basil, how did this book get started? Well, for the longest time, I have wanted to tell this story, and I wanted to do a very deep dive with the lunar explorers themselves. And uh, in 1969, the day after uh, Armstrong and uh, Aldrin walked on the moon, the New York Times did this uh, wonderful section um, with all of the thought leaders of the day, asking them what they thought about it. And they were coming at it from the philosophical, from the spiritual side, also from the, the, the technological and the, and the cultural side. They interviewed everyone from a very young Dalai Lama to heads of the Orthodox churches, philosophers, poets, and that's what intrigued me, what they were saying about how man's perception of himself in the universe would change. And I knew that the best ambassadors and best sources for that information would be the astronauts themselves. And, uh, you know, over the last 45, 50 years, I think I have consumed every book there is to consume on, on their missions. Interestingly, no one has ever really talked to them post the right stuff about the anatomy of courage, uh, what they think about moral courage, uh, how they were able to conquer their fear, uh, what they thought about uh, spirituality, their perception of God after uh, being out there 240,000 miles away, uh, the common good, the kinds of existential questions that they really weren't prepared to talk about or nobody thought to ask them about uh, shortly after their missions. And uh, I felt that now that they're approaching uh, their 90s, some are already in their 90s, late 80s, uh, that they might be filled with the kinds of philosophical reflections that would be of great value to all of us. And so uh, in my quest to get them to talk to me, the very first question they asked was, well, what is it that you're going to do that nobody else has done? And they asked me to submit you know, a two-page memo uh, with a thesis of the book, and, and they were immediately taken by it. Uh, and the first person that I talked to was uh, Bill Anders, who took the famous Earthrise photo on Apollo 8. Uh, we had a wonderful conversation. He's uh, an armchair historian. We swapped stories about history, and uh, uh, as a funny aside, he took me into his study where he has all of his uh, uh, meteor and, 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 and fossil you know, collections. And he said to me, he said, look, 
He says, you know, geologists uh, say that uh, you can sometimes tell something about a rock just by tasting it. Well, I was sensing a setup. <laughs> so, okay. So he says, here, take a lick of this. I did. And he says, you know what that is? Fossilized dinosaur shit. <laughs> they have a wonderful sense of humor, these fellows. But what he said to me was that, that the true source of courage comes from essentially four things. Duty, honor, country, and the common good. And this was something that I heard from all of them. And the common good is not uh, a notion that you hear much about these days. And it's, I think, something that needs to be reintroduced into the national dialogue. Uh, many of them feel that we have become terribly tribal and overly nationalistic. And so if they had to sort of reframe the notion of uh, duty, honor, country, I think it would read duty, honor, earth citizens of the earth so they are committed to their country but they came back committed as planetary citizens not just Americans the Tom Wolf coined that phrase the right stuff that is the moniker that certainly embraces the original Mercury 7 astronaut but this is the Apollo and the Gemini astronauts that are certainly a continuation of the right stuff you as someone who has watched these people uh, from afar when they were first doing their adventures, but now as someone who's interviewed them have, gets a larger perspective of them. So my question is, after meeting all of these people, what is the right stuff? The right stuff in, in their minds is, is this. Above all, humility. Uh, not bragging about your accomplishments to be courageous but not boastful uh, to learn how to uh, master your fear to always be prepared the old Boy Scout motto and to train and train and train so it's not that these men were fearless and, and there was, I think, a misconception that the movie, The Right Stuff, created. And they did not like the movie. None of them did. They enjoyed the book, but they felt that the movie made them appear slightly as you know, risk-takers who weren't calculating the risks or, and, and, and fearless and somewhat daredevilish. Well, nothing could be farther from the truth. These men were all highly educated engineers, a number of them with PhDs, most of them with masters in nuclear engineering and, uh, and aeronautics. They were very well prepared. So as test pilots, they knew the ins and outs of the aircraft that they were testing. They studied the blueprints. They knew exactly what the capabilities of, of that uh, aircraft was, and they never pushed it beyond the limits that they knew that the, um, the aircraft was capable of. So they had a very finely tuned appreciation of calculated risk, and they trained for it so that when they did run into problems, they knew 
that they could go to plan B and plan C and D. There were always options that they could exercise. So they stayed, stayed calm, they stayed focused, and it's something that the Navy SEALs today call front sight focus. And they train the fear out of you by preparing you for every conceivable failure. Uh, so in this regard, uh, there is something to learn from them, and I think they want the world to know that. Uh, and it applies in every area of your life. You know, to not panic, to keep calm, to assess the situation that you are in, and particularly if you are in the business of, say, something like space, to make sure that you know what, what all of your uh, contingencies and checklists are and to uh, go down the list and act appropriately. You said that when these individuals came back to Earth, they weren't just Americans. They were larger citizens of the, of the world Correct. in that regard. How else did these individuals change? And I guess I would ask, which of those people, based upon that experience, you think changed the most? Well, they all they all changed in many of the the same ways, and 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 the the, the similar the common denominator amongst all of them was that when they returned they saw Earth as the Garden of Eden, as paradise. So think for a moment, you're walking on, on the moon. You're, you're just <laughs> one pinprick away from death. There's nothing on the moon. It is a dead, lifeless... As Buzz Aldrin said, magnificent desolation. Magnificent desolation. Absolutely correct. And here they are for, you know, depending on the later missions where they spent you know, two days on the surface of the moon and what have you. So here they are out there for almost two weeks, breathing 100% uh, oxygen, no natural air, not a, a shred of greenery anywhere. And they come splash down into the Pacific Ocean. And the way Alan Bean, who was the fourth moonwalker, described it, he said, when we opened that hatch and we're just overwhelmed by that lush, warm, Pacific Ocean air. He said it was as if you know, we had landed in the, in the cradle of life. And he said, you know, I have never complained about the weather since. I'm glad we have weather. I'm glad we have traffic. And he went into a shopping mall, sat down with an ice cream cone, and just started watching people walk by. So they, they achieved this newfound appreciation for life here on Earth. Now, the ways, the different ways in which they reacted, in terms of religion, you had some, uh, like Jim Irwin, who uh, reinforced his uh, belief in, in Jesus and said that Jesus talked to him uh, while he was on the surface and helped him with a particularly different experiment. In the case of Charlie Duke, he did not find God while walking on the moon. He rediscovered God afterwards. You then have the case of Bill Anders, who went out a practicing Catholic, returned three days later and said, you know, it's ridiculous to think that God sit, sits up there with his supercomputer. 
and he questioned all of the teachings that that he had um, absorbed as 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 a kid from from the Catholic Church. I think where they where they mostly came around to was Einstein's uh, beautiful articulation of bowing to the unknowable, but um, understanding that there is this wonderful logic and order to the universe and that that is the true source of, of religiousness and uh, I think that resonated for many of them in the case of Pete Conrad he said it made no difference in his life whatsoever he was uh, a, a little bit of an outlier in, in that regard and, and Pete was uh, just kind of a funny irreverent guy absolutely colorful character yes uh, all of those people have amazing color, but I think Pete Conrad is his own spectrum. He he is, and, and in <laughs> fact, you know, I received a lovely email from his wife, who who just read the book and said she was brought to tears by it, and uh, she's invited me out to Seattle in November, where they're uh, doing a uh, memorial and uh, what have you there at the uh, at the museum, the Space Museum. So the the reactions were were quite different. They all believe that there is life on other planets. They think that it's just a statistical certainty in the same way that uh, uh, Enrico Fermi said that, who was the famous Italian physicist who worked on the Manhattan Project to create America's first nuclear uh, bomb, atomic bomb. And Fermi, it's known as Fermi's paradox. Fermi said that given the billions of galaxies that there are out there, that there must be life um, on, on other planets, what form it is, who knows. But then he, he sort of reflected at the end of it, and he said, well, you know, if there is life out there, well, where is everybody, he famously asked. Uh, so that's, you know, that's an intriguing question that I think, um, you know, plagues uh, all of us. Each of the astronauts certainly were taking on a death-defying activity, but there are also people in their immediate orbit who bore a cost and consequence to all of these adventures, each of these death-defying missions. What were the changes and costs and consequences that happened with their families? Well, they sacrificed their families. Uh, the, the divorce rate was 60%. Uh, the you know NASA was great at at, at uh, putting uh, the men through uh, all kinds of simulations for failure, but no one trained the wives for marriage and how to succeed in their marriages. Uh, two men who were committed uh, basically, I mean, they were working sixteen-hour days, you know, seven days a week. And they spent very little time with their families. And so there was a very high price paid by the wives and the children. There were a few successful marriages. I focus in the book on the four that did manage to survive and thrive. And it was mostly the result of uh, good communication skills between uh, the astronauts and the wives. So, for example, Bill Anders on Apollo 8 would take his wife with him. Uh, when he toured uh, the factories that were making, you know, the various parts of the spacecraft. And she was, you know, very thankful for that. So Bill was very honest with her about the dangers. And so was Jim Lovell. Uh, Frank Borman, I think, had a, a little bit of a greater challenge. Um, his wife was a very regal, 
uh, elegant woman and, and never allowed herself to display her, her real terror. And so she was quietly drinking and sliding into depression and Frank only later realized how bad it was and he um, loved her deeply, uh, admitted that he had failed to uh, spend uh, more time with her, you know, emotionally and otherwise, and helped her get through it. Uh, so the wives to this day still talk to each other and have uh, luncheons, and uh, it was a, a real education for me to talk to them, in, in, including some of their children and Mike Collins' daughters. Uh, and I had a very long conversation, and they're in the book as well, talking about how they dealt with the press, which was <laughs> always chasing after them. So, When you look at that era, Life magazine had an exclusive relationship with the astronauts that now would not be possible for a lot of different reasons. But we're now in an era with social media and the sort of public shaping of lots of new different categories of astronauts. Uh, we have now commercial astronauts. Uh, we certainly have a far more diverse astronaut corps. When you talk about the lessons from the men who went to the moon, what do you think if that most e of elite fraternities could counsel the new generation of astronauts, what do you think they would say to prepare them for missions to the moon and beyond? I think they would tell them to train as, as hard and as intensely as they did. I think they would tell them to remember the, the four words that they lived by, duty, honor, country, the common good, and to be humble and to not uh, be braggarts. Uh, and to make sure that they are involved in every part of the operation, uh, which includes visiting with the contractors and the people who are building uh, the spacecraft, and to uh, fully appreciate calculated risk. Um, I think those would be the, the main things that they would uh, ad advise them on, and to be morally courageous so that if they spot something that they think is wrong, you know, to call it up to management, uh, which they did uh, in that era, and uh, I'm hopeful that the same moral courage exists today. Basil, you can't have conversations with people who literally rewrote human history and not have it create change in you. Mm -hmm. How did the experience with this book change you? I think what it, it did for me was it restored my faith in humanity, quite frankly, uh, certainly a segment of it. And it reminded me that America had the ability to create uh, these kinds of men and women, and I think it still does. I think the pool of available men and women like that may be shrinking a little bit, but they're still there. I think you find them in the military, I think you find them uh, with the Navy SEALs who also live by the same code that the Apollo astronauts did. I think that it's important for us in the wider culture to hear this message. And so uh, that's what I 
uh, took away from them. And there is, uh, you know, this wonderful uh, statement from uh, Mike Collins, who, when he returned uh, from the moon, and they went on their round-the-world tour, and if I may quickly read from it, he, he said that there, there was this extraordinary moment that wherever they went, here's what he said, wherever we went, people instead of saying, well, you Americans did it, everywhere they said, we did it. We human, humankind, we the human race, we people did it. And I had never heard of people in different countries use this word, we, we, as emphatically as we were hearing from Europeans, Asians, Africans, wherever we went, it was we finally did it. I thought it was a wonderful thing, ephemeral, but wonderful. And you had this brief moment in time there where the entire planet saw the American moon landing as an international feat. And I think it's part of the genius of America in that we represent the world because virtually every ethnic group and country is represented here. And so it would be nice if we could recapture, I think, that planetary uh, collective and that notion that we are one human race living on this tiny planet and that we should uh, all work together uh, instead of against each other and to go explore space as planetary civilization and not as individual nations again competing against each other in the same way that the explorers and countries of the 15th century did. The book is called The Mission of a Lifetime, Lessons from the Men Who Went to the Moon. It's written by Basil Hero, commended to all of our listeners and to anybody who is a space enthusiast and wants to better understand not just the people who made history, but how that history can shape us. Basil, thank you very much for your time. This is Rich Cooper with the Space Foundation and the Space for You podcast. Uh, encouraging you to keep in mind all the things that we have going on at the Space Foundation. You can find those at spacefoundation.org as well as our Space Foundation app because at the Space Foundation, we always have space for you. Thank you. Thank you.